Hi there, thanks for tuning in. This is Malia Hoffman, and I'm here with Fred Ramirez, and you're listening to the Carrero Podcast. Today, our guest is Holly Jackson Shelton. She teaches leadership and problem solving at a Title I middle school in Charlotte, North Carolina. She has a passion for curriculum development and making middle school as enjoyable as possible. After spending her first six years in the classroom as a sixth grade social studies teacher, PLC leader, and grade level leader, she took on the challenge of creating three elective courses to align with her school's new leadership magnet program. Now in her year two of implementation and after lots of trial and error, she has created three distinct course offerings focused on developing critical thinking, problem solving skills, and personal leadership and global perspectives. Some of her students' favorite lessons include the I Am Habit seminar in sixth grade, the zombie apocalypse, survival guide in seventh grade, and the social media problem unit in eighth grade. And all students love doing her self-created teamwork escape rooms. Hi, Holly. Welcome. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day and starting with us here on the podcast. We would like to just get a little bit of background about how you became a teacher and how does someone from California end up in North Carolina? Good morning, very glad to be here. Um, I originally was an athlete growing up thinking I was gonna become like a physical therapist or something that would help athletes. And then I decided um, I actually have a knack for this like teaching and coaching thing, maybe I should do that. And I switched to my major at the last second, literally like called right before starting school as a freshman in college and switched my major to teaching social studies. Um, graduated from Biola University and did it by teaching my student teaching there, but graduated in 2008 when the recession was hitting. And so basically when I graduated and finished my student teaching semester, they said, normally we'd be, we would be offering you a um, position here next year but we're firing a lot of our staff. So wow. good luck. And basically all of the sub lists um, were shut down. Teachers who were let go were put on the sub list. And so I had to fight just to get on any sub list, which basically ended up being um, private schools in Orange County. There were four positions posted on the California like teacher page for the entire state of California for my subject area. And I ended up spending the next three years working odd jobs and missing the classroom and trying to get back. And I decided to do Teach for America. And through Teach for America, they offered me high school science in North <laughs> Carolina. And I was like, whatever, just get me back in the classroom. And then through another series of completely ridiculous events, um, mostly the fact that I'm not a science person, I didn't pass the praxis the first time I took it and I was the last, like I was the fifth deadline Teach for America, which means that year, 2012, Teach for America and the state of North Carolina agreed that if you didn't pass it the first time and before the first day of school, you could not retake it and you were out of the program. Whoa. And that was the first year they had made that agreement. Hmm. And here I am now, I've moved my entire life across the state and I have no job. Oh my gosh. And I said, well, um, I have a teaching license. Like I'm one of the only people in the 167 people you bought to the state this year that actually has a teaching degree and teaching license. They're like, yeah, we don't actually do that. You can't be in hmm. Teach for America and have a teaching license. Wow. And so um, they said, you can get a job teaching, but it cannot be in Charlotte Mecklenburg schools 
or else you're out of Teach for America. If you want to try again next year, then you have to get a job something else and we'll try you again next year. And I said, well, this is silly. I can do what I am trained to do. So I went to a different county, went to a Title I school and have been in Title I schools ever since. And I now work in Charlotte Mecklenburg schools, but I actually never finished Teach for America because I was like, this seems like jumping through hoops for no reason. I already have the teaching job, so mm-hmm. here we go. Well, and it, and, and it sounds like the Title I school just welcomed you with open arms. They did. And my first school that I was in North Carolina was in a very small community um, in a county just outside of Charlotte. And it was um, culture shock, to say the least, because it was a a school that was less than 400 students, but we were 98% free and reduced. And um, it was poverty that I had never seen before and never even really knew existed coming out of my Orange County bubble. and so it kind of definitely changed my entire perspective. And so after I did two years there, I decided to transition to a Title I in Charlotte. And I've been at that same school ever since. So can you can you talk about that? Um, what what changed? Um, what did what did you learn? And then then how did that um, affect your own teaching? So what I learned was that I had grown up in a complete bubble of Orange County. I had no idea what was really going on in the rest of the world. Um, And even like looking back, like within California, I think some of the issues that I see here in Charlotte, 100% exist in California. I just truly was in the Orange County bubble. And so those problems were not even on my radar. Um, And so being here in the South, um, in an urban district, I was exposed to racism for the first time, like truly like not just on TV, not just hearing about it from some other person, like seeing it happen in my school building, Um, seeing students being raised where like they open their backpack and like roaches crawl out because they're like living in literal filth in homes that should be condemned, but it's the only place with the roof over their head. Knowing that um, at our school of less than 400, 50 of our students were, fully homeless, like living out of cars and like random hotel rooms. Um, I coached soccer and softball there those two years. And so I would drive my students home because a lot of them didn't have any transportation and I didn't want them to not be able to be on the team. And when I would drive them home, it was like, I cannot believe that children are being raised in this. And the reality was that's, that's all they ever knew. So they had no idea what I was feeling on the inside and I had no idea really how to even like wrap my head around what I was seeing. Um, And the parents would, I mean, it was just, it was brand new information for me. And then now transitioning to Charlotte, which is much more urban from where I was, um, still seeing a lot of those same things. It just, I don't know, it's a little different because like that was like country poor if you understand what I mean, like I was, we were out in the boons a little bit, like it was kind of off the beaten path. And so we had a lot of country accents. Like I, it was a whole nother language for me to hear a kid with a country accent Mm -hmm. for the first time. Um, And then now moving to Charlotte, it is very much, um, the poverty is very real, but it's almost more hidden, I guess. Like kids can hide it a little bit better in the city. Um, so like teachers have a way that like, I know like the kids wearing the same thing all the time, or you like, there's little signs that you can tell, 
But at our school, we were um, a pilot program for every child receiving free lunch and breakfast, no matter what their income. So it kind of eliminated that stigma of like what paperwork kids have. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, kids were a little bit able to hide a little bit better um, because of that, which I think was probably really good for them emotionally and socially, but brought up challenges for um, teachers to like really know how to best support students because legally our counselors can't tell us that information, which seems crazy. Like you yeah. can't tell me something that's really seriously impacting my students in my mm-hmm. classroom. And if you told me it might change like my approach with a child. So it, it's been um, definitely eye-opening, I would say. So being a brand new teacher, it's just a challenge in its own. And being a brand new teacher in a Title I school with the culture shock of living in the South for the first time and navigating um, that, what other challenges or obstacles did you feel like you had to adjust to or overcome just like from a, like a teaching standpoint? Yeah. So just from that standpoint, um, uh, going into such a small school, I was the only teacher who taught my subject for my grade level. So I was a PLC of one and (laughs) that was the first year of, um, the new curriculum in North Carolina because of the new state standards. So they basically, walked in and said, okay, well, there's all new curriculum. So the textbooks that you have are completely um, invalid. They cover nothing that you're supposed to cover. And also all of our students um, are, you know, about four grade levels behind on reading and their writing skills. And here you go. Good luck. And you have 45 minutes for six classes a day. Uh, Go. And it's like, oh, okay, great. And so that was just a complete learning curve. Basically, you know, you go through student teaching and you write these five-step lesson plans every day for student teaching. Mm-hmm. And I was getting through a do now and an introductory activity in 45 minutes trying to manage everything that was going on in my space. And then like picking up the lesson the next day or just trying to start over from scratch. I mean, it was something different those first two years. But when you get thrown into the fire like that, you really build resiliency. You learn a ton really fast. And you have to cultivate relationships really quickly with kids to be able to reach them in a meaningful way because you just don't have a lot of time. And I actually was able to take a school that was like last in the district every year consistently. And my students um, were in the top three in their interim test scores in the district in the two years that I was there. That's amazing. So then, so then how can you, can you talk about that? How you, how you went from learning everything what you were what you were doing? Um, how did you build relationships with your with your kids? I like to say that I am an overgrown twelve year old. Perfect. Um, my students know that I am a complete open book. So when you are working with kids who, I mean, it's just very different. So I see this in my school now. We have kids who come from really well-to-do homes. They are, have plenty of love and support at home. And then we have kids who are coming through all kinds of stuff and they need something different. And so for me, I have always found that if I'm completely open about who I am and like a complete open, I will answer any question. I will put myself on display and be a huge fool in front of you um, and be super vulnerable with you 
then they can relate to you a lot faster and a lot better. Like, oh, they're just like a person. Okay, great. And so it was really a way that I was able to build like a mutual respect with my students by just saying like, hey, you know what? Like I made a mistake on this. We got to try again, you know? And just by being vulnerable with them, um, cultivating hugely strong relationships over the years has come a lot easier for me. Awesome. So you um, also became a leader in the Mead Magnet School. Can you tell us what that is and and maybe just like a little bit of how you got involved in that? Yeah, so I kind of bulldozed my way <laughs> um, into where I am now. So I was teaching seventh grade social studies for six years um, and basically felt like I had done everything that I really had set out to do with seventh grade social studies and started to just kind of itch for something different. Um, I had been a PLC of one, then a PLC of three. I was a PLC leader and a grade level leader. And I just wanted something that was a new challenge because our curriculum was set. Our students were achieving higher than expected growth. And I felt like, okay, what's next? And our school was going to make this transition. And I was not originally on the um, magnet team just because they were trying to get other varying perspectives. And I had a lot on my plate anyways. And I basically went to my principal and I said, I need change. And so I need you to move my position or I'm out kind of a thing. And I didn't really mean to I mean, I did and I didn't. I didn't really mean to, <laughs> to um, end up where I was. Like, I just never really anticipated that. But the reality is that she said, okay, well, here's what we need. Nobody wants this position of forming brand new classes, but I think that you'd be great at it. Do you want my help to do that? And I said, uh, three new classes, I can choose whatever I want. She said, yes, whatever you want, as long as you can make it aligned to the magnet. And I said, are you sure? And she said, yes. I said, great, I'll take it. And I had no idea what I was going to teach. Fine. But because I said yes to that, then it threw me into this like magnet, like implementation team. And then now I'm on this Padea implementation team because our school is this double magnet. And um, I found a way to just kind of land with way too much of my plate, but trying to manage it all. And now I teach three classes that I created from scratch that have no curriculum. They're not even listed in the system. So the kids come and they're like, what's academic enrichment? I'm like, nothing. That has nothing to do with what we're doing here. There's just no name for your class in the system because it doesn't exist anywhere else. So it's, I bulldozed my way in, I guess. Can you tell us a little bit about those electives that you, you chose to design? Yeah. So, um, through working with, um, some other leaders through our, our magnet program, I got the idea to take the framework. We are a um, leader in me school. Uh, Stephen F. Covey, the guy who does the seven habits of highly effective people. Yeah. Um, we have adopted that kind of framework to build our classes around. And so I then said, okay, what if I take my class for sixth grade and make it a seven habits leadership class. So we go over the five different paradigms of the leader in me. And those are the five different units I teach like through this lens and like through my lens though, which means lots of, um, video clips of like athletes, like showing different Nike clips, like 
how do you relate to, you know, finding ways to like relate kids to like the things that they're already interested in um, and relate it back to themselves and really trying to cultivate the personal leadership within themselves. Challenging work to do with sixth graders who are mostly just terrified of what's happening in their middle school building at the time that they come to me. Yeah. But um, by over the course of the semester, there's a lot of growth that happens. And then it's only a semester long class. So I teach two semesters. Um, and so that way I can actually reach more kids. Then in seventh grade, that was a labor of love because it just kind of developed um, from me having a conversation with somebody else who said, oh, well, my daughter does this. And I said, oh, interesting. I could turn that into a class. So in seventh grade, the kids come in every day and they sit in random groups that I put them in and they're given a problem to solve for the day and they have to work together and collaborate on making that happen. So I'm curious as to how students pick these electives if they're not actually like in the course catalog and or is it just sort of like a, a space filler and they're just sort of like, I don't know, playing roulette and picking classes? How does that happen? Um, so in the first year, kids basically were told, oh, Miss, at the time before I got married, Miss Jackson is going to be moving from seventh grade social studies to electives. So because I kind of prep kids for that, my students that were transitioning to eighth grade they just chose my class not knowing what I was going to do because they wanted, they knew me. Yeah. Now it is on a course card that all kids are introduced to. Um, and so in fifth grade, when those kids are planning to come to our school, there is a description on their course card of what my class is. And we do a lot of, um, because we're a magnet program, we get a lot of like parent walkthroughs and they introduce the class offering. This is the class that aligns to our magnet program. If you want your child to be in that class, this is what they would sign up for. Um, but yes, there are still some kids that have no idea what they're being signed up for and show up and I have to make them love it and want to be there for the rest of the semester, That's which awesome. typically happens. Like then they come back and they're like, wait a minute, how do I, what are you next year? Can I come back to this? And That's exciting for me. So, so semester is like a good amount of time where if, you know, they hate it, you know, they're not really stuck with it for that long, but, um, that's, that sounds really fun. Yes. And I have been warning my students. I, like I said, it's very much like trial and error because I'm mm -hmm. creating from scratch. Yeah. And so every day last year, my first year, it was like, let's just throw spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks. Mm -hmm. um, this year, I have really honed in those classes and they feel very complete and finalized. And like, I feel a lot better about not feeling like I'm living in chaos every day. So I said to the kids that are moving to eighth grade, you know, this is a real like serious class. So sixth grade, that was like personal leadership. And seventh grade, that's a lot of fun stuff. We do escape rooms and you get to do these fun problem solving activities with your friends. Eighth grade we're going to dig deeper and I kind of brought my social studies lens back and I'm developing your global perspective. And we're going to look at these environmental issues or social media problems or gun violence. And we're going to try and problem solve a new solution to that. And you're going to stand up and present it to your peers and really prepare you kind of for high school. Um, so don't come here thinking it's just going to be fun and games. Like this is a much more academic yeah. um, push kind of a class to prep them for the next step. Um, in their journey. Can you can you go a little bit deeper into the types of lessons that you that you do in order to build them up? Because being a 
being a, well, I still consider myself a social, social studies teacher um, mm -hmm. after, after all of these years. And we, and we kind of know that social studies for many, many kids is boring. Um, though people like you and I think, no, it's great. Right. Um, so can you, what, so I guess this is like a two part question. How do you, can you share some lessons where you, where you go from sixth grade to eighth grade in order to build them up? Um, and then can you also share how, how you, you create social studies in a, you know, in a more interactive way? Sure. So in sixth grade, I really start this global perspectives by um, pulling stories of children, teenage kids who have, or even younger, who have done something great in their community and have shown leadership um, in their community. And it could be from anywhere around the world. Um, and so we do a lot of like, these are what kids around the world, this is what kids around the world are doing. Let's do a little bit of research on this. How can you relate this to yourself? What kinds of things could you personally do to impact your community? So we kind of build that circle around that. And then in seventh grade, it's really more about, um, it's really less about all the academic kind of that part. It's about collaborating. How do you work with people, whether you like them or not in a space? Because you're not going to pick your group every day. You're going to walk in and you're going to have a different seat. And, and it's how to be uncomfortable and be okay with discomfort, right? Because every single day you're getting a new seat in this classroom. You have new partners at your table and you have to figure out how to collaborate with them. And in the beginning of the semester, it's, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't like that person. I don't get along with that person. I don't care. I don't like everybody I work with. We have to get along and collaborate. So you have to figure that out. That's real life, right? Yeah. And so the discomfort of that is a challenge for them in itself. And we work through that throughout the course of the semester. And then eighth grade, truly, um, it's guided research. So I bring back, here's what's happening with this issue around the world. Let's watch a video clip. Here's a handout. How can you relate this to yourself? Like, not just like fact-based fact-finding, but also how can, like, where do you fit into this storyline of this issue? Um, and then again, now here's some partners and problem solve this and then create a solution for this. Um, and so I think by being passionate about it, I think that's almost the biggest thing for kids in social studies. If I'm standing at the front of the room and I look like I want to die um, of boredom from teaching something, the kids are going to feel the same way. Oh, yeah. But if I'm at the front of the room and I'm like, oh my God, this is so cool. They, they will feed off of your mm -hmm. passion for something. Um, and so I think that's really kind of what carried me in a, as a social studies person and from a social studies lens to be able to get kids excited and engaged about content that they may maybe normally wouldn't care about. I like that. And what, what, what type of changes have you, have you witnessed in, in your own kids? And then have they, have they come back um, and mentioned anything to you about, about things that they're learning? Yeah. So it's really fun because I get to see different aspects of their personal reflection over the different years that I teach them, especially because I can teach the same kids sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Um, so like my sixth graders, they become very personally reflective without even really trying. Like they, you know, sixth graders are mostly just trying to feel really cool and like, how do yeah. I fit into the world? And then we do a lesson. Um, it's a seminar where we sit and discuss a poem called I am habit. 
And then they have to write the reflection of that is they have to write a letter to a breakup letter to their bad habit and be very reflective about why they have to break up. And like, what do you mean? I'm like, I need you to say, dear nail biting, I hate your stinking guts and I'm never talking to you ever again. And so I get these amazingly reflective letters and dear cell phone, we have to break up. You're ruining my life. And then they come back to me a week later. You know, Ms. Shelton, we wrote that letter and I wrote about my cell phone and I'm already addicted to it again. And it's really <laughs> like really cute to see them as 11 and 12 year olds be really reflective of that. Mm-hmm. And then with my older kids, I actually get, um, I have, you know, contact with a lot of my students who've moved out of the high school. It's right across the street from us. And they come back and visit my classroom. They've come back and um, presented information to my students. And they call me on my phone and, oh, my God, you weren't lying. High school is so hard. You tried to warn us. You tried to prepare us. And we didn't listen. And, like, you you tried so hard to tell me. And I didn't believe you. And now I'm in the middle of it. And it's really hard. And so it's nice to know that I've cultivated those relationships to a point where now they can reach back out and like ask for advice or come back to my classroom and share what they've learned to the younger generation. It sounds like you have a ton of passion and you are not afraid to jump into anything and you are truly just practicing what you're preaching to your students about being uncomfortable or being comfortable with the uncomfort. Um, Mm -hmm. You've mentioned a couple of things that I just kind of wanted to circle back to. You talked a little bit about how you experience racism. And um, I wanted to know if that's one of the topics or things that you in your classes uh, talk about with your students. And if you do, how does that how does that look and what what happens there? A hundred percent. I'm very real about all of the conversations that people are afraid to have. I let's talk about it. Let's bring it up. And especially in my school, it's really um, very prevalent. So we are predominantly at this. When I first got to this school, it was 30, 30, 30 white, Hispanic, African-American. We are now 40 percent Hispanic. We have a ton of I I truly don't know what it is about our school. I think it's the way that we embrace our international students, but we have gained a ton of international students. So we're very much um, majority Hispanic and then African-American and then white. So um, our, our diversity is very strong. And so issues of race and socioeconomic difference, it's very prevalent in our building. Um, Our school, I would say is, leading the pack in terms of educating the educators in the building about racism. We really just had an all day long PD. Uh, They brought in um, somebody to talk to us about racism in America. Like, what does that look like in this building? Let's have the difficult conversations. Let's share our perspectives, Um, which I'm excited that our school is doing those things. I think it's really important. And within my classroom, it's, I've always been all about this is a space every single person is welcome. So your personal thoughts, feelings, that's great. I want you to have those. I want you to be passionate about how you feel, but that doesn't mean you get to tear down other people. So throughout my career, it's always been in this space. Let's talk about it. What's the issue and what is racism actually? Let's really explain that because like kids don't fully understand what that is. Like 
no, technically a black person cannot be racist to another black person. That's prejudice, but we have to talk about race as um, power. It's a power thing, right? So like a white person who has historical power is racist and a black person then cannot be racist to another black person. That's prejudice. So it's trying to break down those like distinctions with 12 year olds. is a little challenging, mm-hmm. but important to have those conversations to say like, I'm not saying that what you're saying is okay because it might not be technically racist. It is still wrong, but let's really talk about what this issue is. Let's get into it. And um, at our school, especially, um, we have a lot of the issue of, you know, kids will vocally talk about how much they hate our president because we've had times in our school in the last couple of years where all of the Hispanic students are not at school because ICE is in town and everybody's hiding out in our entire city. So like we have to talk about those things Mm -hmm. because this is a very real issue that our students are facing. And I have students who come to me and, you know, excited. I, my mom and I got granted asylum, you know, like this is a huge deal for my family. And so this is something that is very much, um, if you're not talking about it, then you're pretending like it doesn't exist and it does exist and it's very real for our students. And so let's have open, honest conversations about it um, and call it out when we see it. Like that's kind of the mantra of our building. Like if you see it, say something, Um, especially amongst adults, because you're not going to um, change systemic racism if you don't just start by calling it out. And so even in our building, it's like, check your bias. Why are you asking that kid to do whatever you're asking? Or why are you writing that kid up? Is it because they really did something really offensive? Or is it because of who they are? Mm -hmm. And so that is very, has been a huge transition for me personally. Like I don't do anything right now in my classroom without like doubling back in my mind about what is my motivation for doing this? Like really checking my bias because we all have it. Yeah, It's just a matter of trying to stay aware of it. So. Now, I, I think what you, what you said is something that a lot of teachers really either don't think about or they just choose not to is, is checking their own bias first. Um, once again, this is like a two-part question. Do you find that coming from a place like California, that it's, that it's easier for, for you to talk about these, these, these things. Um, and then the second part, are there, are you, do you find like, like like-minded people from, from that, you know, from that area that are, that are willing to, to be more outspoken about it? From the Charlotte area or from Charlotte area? Um, So I feel like, I don't know if it has to do with being from California or if Mm -hmm. it just has to do with being who I am. I'm just always a boundary pusher, I guess. Um, So I don't, I don't know. I just have never had, I'm an advocator. So I've never really had an issue since coming to Charlotte. I would, I would say that the things I advocated for when I lived in California probably were very different. And I actually probably was a lot more racist when I lived in California and had a lot more biases that I didn't understand or really, really know when I lived in California prior to moving. Um, and here, I think having gone through Teach for America, you meet a lot of people who are from different parts of the country who 
have experienced a lot of different things. And those people actually tend to be a lot more open and willing to discuss the hard things and like point it out. And so that has been helpful for me to feel like you're not alone or you can ask for support or, Hey, am I doing this wrong? (laughs) You know, like, have I screwed up because I don't want to screw up. I want to be somebody who's an ally to help fix the problem. So I think, um, even though I never really graduated from Peach for America, uh, having that that network has definitely been beneficial for me. I think it's really brave and honest of you to like just acknowledge that you may have been more racist, you know, living in California or that you have biases and things. And I think that a lot of times when we self-reflect in our own minds, we we might acknowledge these things, but to say them out loud and to acknowledge them out loud um, can be scary. It's, you know, making yourself transparent. And I think um, when you, when you call out these things or have conversations with people or adults or even kids, I think the immediate reaction is to be defensive because you, you know that your heart is, you know, like your intentions are true, but that doesn't mean that you're still not wrong. And so I think that um, a lot of what you're doing in the school is good with kids because I think that they are more open to having these conversations because they are in the environment where their beliefs are going to be challenged. But I think the other thing that's challenging is that you're fighting other things that are happening at home that you don't really have control over. So do you have any experiences with that? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, we have, <laughs> we do. Yeah. I mean, yes, we do. Uh, we, we see it happen. Um, you know, especially I would say more so when I was teaching social studies and my, my last couple of years in the classroom, um, of social for social studies, it was like, you know, election time and you definitely will see these two sides and how do you, remain neutral or not, Mm -hmm. right? Like I'm really a strong believer of like, how do I share who I am and educate children and know that I have biases without like forcing my biases on kids. Mm -hmm. And I really have always told the kids, like, I want you to formulate your own opinions because I have formulated mine over the years. If you want to know what my beliefs are, you want to know what faith I have, you want to know any of those things, you can ask me and I'll tell you, but I'm also not going to tell you that the way I think is the only way to think. And so because of that, it really, like kids would openly support either side of the spectrum. And then within that, it's okay. You can support those things, but you have to also understand why somebody else in this classroom feels very differently than you. And how do we have those conversations without speaking in personal hate-filled ways, right? Like a lot of times when we have these conversations now, we don't know how to have them, especially like you see this on social media, adults on Facebook, (laughs) we have a disagreement. And instead of talking about the actual issue we're disagreeing about, we're literally saying, well, you're ugly and stupid and uneducated. Well, that's, you're just attacking who I am as a person. You're not attacking what I'm saying I'm agreeing or disagreeing with. And so having those conversations and talking to kids and saying like, listen, this isn't a personal, you don't make this about the person you're talking to. Let's talk about the issue. Let's figure out what are these two sides. Let's become more educated about what we're thinking and feeling. 
instead of being like, well, if you support this person, then you just must be a hateful racist. What, you know, like go down that path. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of these kids, they're hearing it from home. They don't even know. They don't even know what their parents are supporting because they don't actually have enough knowledge yet in history, government, economics to really know what that is. So it's really about cultivating that knowledge for them so that they can start to be more educated about the things that they're saying and they, they believe in Yeah. Um, on either side of that. And I think just practicing respectful discourse is a skill that is just necessary across all ages. And you brought up the point on social media. It's so many, it's so easy to be a keyboard warrior and to just send anything you want and not have anything to back it up with and to be really unkind. And that's not what we want to teach our kids. And that's really not what makes the world a better place. Right. And I think that one of the ways um, our school and myself, I personally, because I've become very trained in this, um, I the strategy I utilize a lot to teach that respectful discourse is Padea seminars, which is basically Socratic seminars um, on steroids. Like there's a, more of a process around it. And so through that lens, you know, we're really teaching kids how to say, I hear you, I understand what you're saying, but I disagree with you and here's why um, without it becoming an argument. And through those seminars about other texts, like it could be anything truly, how do you pull evidence from the text to support what you're saying and not just attack the person itself? Um, And so that's been really, I would say, pretty meaningful um, in our school building and in my classroom. Um, After, after being there, because that, you know, that's, you're, you're bringing up a lot of information. Um, (laughs) I think, I think stuff that we could go into a lot. Um, And one of the things that I think you should do is actually <laughs> here's my bias coming up holly okay ready <laughs> um you should you should definitely write about that what you're you know what you're doing in sixth through eighth grade and just look and, and framing all those you know all those changes taking place um and then even even bringing in your like ninth grade students when they when they come back but how do you see the state of education within the state of north north carolina um, and if there is anything, what would you like to see changed? Oh, uh-oh. oh, oh, <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> or you could, you know. oh, box. Okay. Yeah, you don't Where need- do you begin? Um, North Carolina is in trouble, I would say, um, as a state. So we are a right to work state. We have teachers so like people hear right to work state and they think oh you can't unionize well no that's not true we have unionization like we have a teachers union um it just means that we actually cannot fight for our rights in the same way you can in a union state um so our union can't say well the teachers are going on strike until you you meet xyz expectations um so because our state uh, we don't have the same power we would have other places. Our state legislature um, has made a lot of decisions that are not for the benefit of public education. And essentially what they have proven to the teachers in this state is that um, if they could get rid of us, they would. That's truly 
at the heart of everything. Um, so wait, as you mean teachers or teachers who are unionized? No, no, teachers in public teacher, public school teachers in general, they're all of the legislative decisions that have been made since I have been in North Carolina have been negative for teachers. So Mm. what you'll see on the news is, is, oh, North Carolina average teacher pay is rising every year. Well, that's because they're raising the entry level pay. So people who are new to the profession, yeah, their pay is rising to a national average. But their pay over the course of their career tops out at $50,000. So when you hit year 15 in our system, in our state, year 15 is the last year you get a pay raise until year 24. And at year 24, you get $300. Wow. Like it is crazy. They've basically put up a lot of systems for how do we pit teachers against each other so that they will not want to work together against the government. And then within that, how do we get teachers to leave the profession before we have to pay for their retirement, including teachers who joined the profession in North Carolina in 2000, in 2020, 2021 school year, they are no longer eligible for retirement benefits. They eliminated master's pay in this state. So if you didn't have it prior to a certain date, you do not get master's pay. And um, so like I have my master's, but I am, I don't get my master's pay for that. So I guess you want less educated people in the classroom is what they're saying with that. Right. Um, Whereas you look at states like New York and you basically have to have a master's to step into a classroom. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting. Um, And essentially every time they give us a raise, they change our medical benefits. So the raise is essentially negated by the rising cost of our medical benefits. Um, So they're like, look, we gave you a 3% raise. Yeah, you also changed my medical benefits and now I have to pay more for that. So you just, it's, you know, six of one. Mm-hmm. And um, they're trying to get teachers to not be career teachers is what they're doing. Um, and it's pretty frustrating. I think that our state as a whole is seeing a huge decline. We have record lows of teacher candidates um we cannot fill at the start of this school year we had over seven thousand jobs across the state that were unfilled um the reality is if we did go on strike they couldn't fire us all because who would take the jobs but legally they could fire us all so Mm -hmm. if i protest i can lose my job it's a law they put into place that teachers are not allowed to protest which i'm pretty sure is my first amendment right uh, by the constitution of the united states Mm -hmm. but you know not in this state. So there's all of that happening. So as a teacher, you're dealing with all of this stuff from the higher ups, and then you're supposed to be in your classroom. Well, through all of that, we now have, you know, all of my classes are 30 plus. There's not enough teacher aides. They've cut those positions. Um, We don't have, like our facilities are falling apart. I don't know where that lottery education money goes. Nobody does. I mean, it's just a whole thing. And until they change their priorities at the government level, um, it's going to continue to be in a decline, essentially. Wow. So well, why why do you do it? I truly will tell you that I was called to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and every year, <laughs> every year I'm like, I'm going to leave. I can't do this anymore. It's so hard because it is. It's so hard. Like, if you've never been a teacher, especially a teacher in a Title I school, and especially in a giant oversized district that really like, it's so much. 
I just don't think that you could ever possibly fathom what the day-to-day is like. And so there are such great highs in this job, the relationships, the kids, like all of that is amazing, but all the other stuff literally kill you if you let it. And it's how do you find balance and how do you stay sane in a system that is built to make you go insane? And how do you stay focused on the things that like, really matter and the things you really care about um and that's been my biggest for me like I have to just focus on the kids I have to focus on how do I make the classroom a really great place to be and not on all the other stuff or else you would never come back every day you know yeah, so it's how do you reduce the teacher burnout and like how do you like do you find that the culture of your school maybe is open because it sounded like when you told your principal like I need to change I think you said she was like okay do you want to do this and was open to your ideas and to your needs is yeah. that the culture of your school or so typically in our school yes my principal is pretty supportive but I will also say that like across the board we don't have protected time because we don't have the same union protections so like I as a PLC of one strictly because I'm the only person who teaches my subject, I don't have PLC meetings because I am the meeting, right? (laughs) But teachers who have PLCs have mandated two meetings a week plus a grade level meeting. And then on their days off, the teachers who have students with IEPs and 504s now have to go to those meetings. Well, it depends on how the school is. If the school groups kids based on ability like that, right? So let's put all of the students with IEPs and 504s in the same team so that we can also team in those teachers that push in and pull out so that it's easier and less movement for everybody. Well, now you've got four teachers having to go to all the meetings for all of the IEPs and 504s for that grade level. Mm -hmm. They're basically in a meeting every single day before school, after school, whatever. I mean, that's where the burnout comes from. You know, they don't get any time. So we used to say, and the teachers still say it. I don't have lunch duty this year because I'm not, that's just not how my schedule worked out. But when you have lunch duty and meetings, it's basically, do I eat or do I go to the bathroom (laughs) or do I Mm -hmm. watch the kids? Like there's not enough time to do any of it. There's not enough time to be a human. And so the burnout is very real. And I I have yet to find a place that has found a way to mitigate it Mm -hmm. Um, because there's just no protections. There aren't at in, in this state for yeah. teacher time. So, so yeah, as, as kind of a wrap up, um, and there's, there's a lot of things as I, as I shared that, that our listeners will take away from, from this. If, um, but if they could take one thing away from you, what's your call to call to action as a teacher? Um, burn down the system and start all <laughs> Don't be afraid to, I like I, I'm so serious. I, I am so well, serious. The I, system is broken. The current edu- like we, I feel like it's, there's a generation of us adults, my age and older that feel like, well, that's not, this isn't how it was when I was in school. And neither was the world like this when you were in school. Things are so different. And we're so afraid of change 
And we're so stuck to this industrial revolution style of American education that just doesn't make sense anymore for our students. So burn it down and start over, like, and don't be afraid of what that could look like. And it's going to be hard and you're going to pull your hair out and you're going to be frustrated and you're going to have a ton of failures. But the reality is, is you have to change your mindset and you have to change your focus on what is best for my students right now in my classroom to actually prepare them for the world that they are in right now not the world that I wish they were in, which was the one I grew up in, right? Like this is just a different time. So we have to meet the kids where they are now. And currently the system isn't doing that. I love it. Thank you. Um, We would like to have you share your social media outlets that you would be open to having people connect with you on. What what are those? Um, I'm just on Instagram and I and teachers pay teachers, I guess. I don't know that that's social media, but um, my Instagram is Holly Marie something because I'm a Jackson and I'm a Shelton and I have yet to change my name anywhere. So nobody knows my last name. So (laughs) Holly Marie something on Instagram. I have a teacher Instagram, but y'all teacher Instagram is hard and I can't keep up with it with trying to create (laughs) all the other things. So just that's my, I think I'm going to even delete my teacher Instagram because I can't, I can't focus on all that with trying to build free classes. So Don't you also have a Twitter account? Uh, that, that, I only truly, I have Twitter, but I don't even, I literally use it just for, for me to be able to check up-to-date news. Okay. Um, I rarely, I, and a tweet at our school district when I want them to cancel school for snow and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> that no. one's Holly J77, but um, okay. my teachers pay teachers. Um, I'm constantly trying to upload new and fun things like, teamwork escape rooms that are for like any content area just to build teamwork and collaboration in your classroom the kids love them Mm -hmm. um that is the goal getters classroom because that's kind of my theme of my classroom like we're goal getters and we're gonna go make it happen so i love it holly thanks so much for your time thanks so much for your work with your students and we appreciate having you on today thank you so much appreciate it thanks holly it was all right bye really good to see you again yes you too Bye. Bye.